We're going to start this like I always do. Giddy up. Let's go. Robin, O'Brien, how are you this evening? It's so good to see you, Rick. It's great to see you. Thank you so much. It's an honor to have you on. Uh, we're going to have fun here this evening. So uh, I'm going to ask you the first question I ask everyone. What is on your mind right now, Robin? What are you thinking about? So to me, you know, first and foremost, it's always food security. Um, this is what we are working towards. It's what we are working on. Um, nutritional, nutritional security is a component of that food security. But, you know, I was raised in a, in a conservative family in Texas, and I see food security as national security. And I really see that our country is in crisis yeah. because we are not actually growing the food that Americans want to eat. And that's a problem. And it's a problem not only for our families, but it's a problem for our farmers. And so the economics and the financials and all of that don't work. If our farmers are growing food that American families aren't eating, the math flat out doesn't work. You layer on top of that, this war that's happening between Russia and Ukraine and what that is doing to our global food system and the crises that are emerging around food security as it relates to that. So, you know, always first and foremost, it's food security and it's making sure that it's not just calories in. I mean, we care about these babies, that little grandson of yours that was just running around. You want him to have the highest nutrition he can possibly have. Yeah. So for us, you know, as, a, as, as collaborators in this work, it's really trying to make sure that, that this nutritional security and this food security is affordable and accessible to absolutely every single American. I mean, I just, I cannot imagine working on anything else and it feels so incredibly patriotic to me. Well, that's awesome. And you are definitely a pillar in that, in that foundation. So it's, it's great to have you doing that. But isn't it amazing how, how fragile our system is when you get a little stress on the system, how it's going to, it look, acts like it's going to crumble. I know, you know, and I think in a weird way, I mean, COVID and this pandemic, um, that was one of the silver linings for the food companies themselves. I mean, you know, it would fall on deaf ears. Speaking to farmers, you guys are like, of course, it's this fragile. We see it every day. We stand on this soil. We see the impact of these storms. Yeah. Um, you know, for the food companies themselves, too many of them didn't know their supply chain. And that became crystal clear during the pandemic when all of a sudden things started to, to, to buckle and break. And you would sit down with them and, and ask them, you know, well, where in your supply chain can you do something? And for most of them, you know, they knew ADM and Cargill. They knew those big middlemen. They didn't know the farmers behind those middlemen. Yeah. And so it afforded the, the companies themselves a huge opportunity to actually get to know their farmers. And I will say it didn't matter if it was a giant processed food company or one of the organic industry companies across the board. They did not know their supply chains as well as they could have. And I think, you know, they've spent the last couple of years recognizing that that was an enormous vulnerability in their business model. And for a lot of them, they've really gone to work at, you know, fixing that. So, so I don't want to pick on any particular company, but let's just talk about companies in general. How do you, how do they go out and see and find those farmers? I mean, are they hiring a middle person in between or are they doing it internally? How are they doing this? But then, you know, they actually are going out on farm and I will not name names, but there is one really big company that I promise everybody on this call would know. And the CEO a couple of years ago had never actually been on farm. And wow. so, you know, the, the scuttle inside the company was like, is he going to wear jeans? You know, like what, this is a guy that's a corporate guy. And, you know, when he got on farm, he was wearing his jeans. And I thought, this is crazy. This is one of America's largest food companies. Yeah. And the CEO had actually never been on farm, you know, and really like, 
you kind of got to say, wow, we've really got that. It's, it's that big of a problem, but it's also that big of an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. See, I think that's the exact way to look at this. It's, it's not, you've got to get past the negativity. The, oh my gosh, we can't, we can't do this. No, you've got to look at what's the opportunity at hand and how are we going to then take advantage of that? So let's talk about you now about what, okay. So where are you in this puzzle? What are you, what are you thinking? Um, yeah, just let us know what you're doing right now. Yeah. So, you know, I come to it really naturally. I mean, my dad, my dad was in the army and he met my mom who was a nurse uh, with save the children. They met in Vietnam. So this sort of patriotism is, is in my core. It was how I was raised. So when I say food security is national security, I mean, I believe that to my toes. It is one of the most important things we could be addressing as a, as a country. Um, I wish we could take something like the Farm Bill and help every single American understand how critically important that piece of legislation is. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for me, my work, you know, I, I came out of Houston, Texas, and I went to business school. Um, but it was really when I had my four kids and I packed them in pretty close together. I had four kids in five years and my youngest child wow. had an allergic reaction. And all of a sudden, everything that I had learned academically and in my career was totally useless. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm sitting there thinking like, how do I protect this child from these food allergies? And where did this, where did this sort of onslaught of kids with food allergies come from? <clears throat> and so I started doing a lot of digging. I pulled on that skill set that I had developed in business school. I'd been on the investment side and the research side, and I really leaned into it to really try to understand what was happening to the health of the American children. So as I was digging into data on that, you know, unfortunately, it doesn't just pull out in a nice, neat little folder. You can't just go to the FDA yeah. or go to the CDC and pull your children's stats. You're kind of pulling them from all these different places. And so as I was learning about, you know, not only the, the escalating rates of, of food allergies and how there had been a 265% increase in the rate of hospitalizations related to food allergic reactions. So that's wow. people checked into the ER, not somebody just saying they have a food allergy. There was that, there was, you know, one in three Caucasians and one in two um, minority kids born in the year 2000, which is my oldest child's class, were expected to be insulin dependent. And then the, the one that just stopped me in my tracks was the president's cancer panel issued a report and the panel had been formed during the Obama administration, during the Bush administration, but the report had been released during the Obama administration, which I really appreciated um, that, it, that it was bipartisan, that it had mm -hmm. been shared by both parties. Sure. And in, in that report, it said that cancer is the leading cause of death by disease in American children under the age of 15. And when I learned that, Rick, you know, as a mother of four, I just thought like it put me in a dark place. Um, and I thought, you know, why isn't this, why isn't this the front page of the Wall Street Journal? Well, yeah. Why isn't this everything that we are talking about? You know, I was also learning that one in two men are expected to get cancer and one in three women. I mean, those are just jaw dropping statistics. And, you know, oh, when I saw I one in one in two men, I thought like, what are we waiting for? One in one? Like, why are we not yeah. talking about this? So what do you think? I'm going to stop you there for a minute. What do you, let's back up now. So is there something that happened uh, 20 years ago, 30 years? I mean, what, what do you think is the, the happening here? You know, I think there are a lot of different theories and there are a lot of different factors. And so what I did is I had to step back and say, you know, correlation is not causation just because Dr. Oz had a TV show. That's not the reason, you know what I mean? It, it could be right. anything. So you can't right. just attribute it because of this correlation. So, you know, I stepped back and my mother is actually from New Zealand and I'm actually named after a farmer in New Zealand. And something mm -hmm. she taught us as kids was always to step back and, and say, well, how's the rest of the world doing something? 
And that's when I really began to understand that we had made this fundamental shift in agriculture in the US and a lot of our trading partners hadn't adopted it. Or if they had adopted that shift in agriculture, they had labeled these new ingredients so that consumers had full visibility and transparency into what they were eating. In the US, we chose not to label the ingredients. And so, you know, there's gonna be a lot of back and forth. He said, she said on science of genetically engineered crops. That's not what I'm talking about. I am talking about the right to know as an American, what you are feeding your family and what you are putting into your own body. We were not given that right to know. And, you know, as the science has continued to emerge, there were questions around um, different toxicity components of these things. So I had to sit with that for a while because I'm named after a farmer and she was using a lot of these chemicals. Um, on her farm in New Zealand. So I understood the sensitivity. I understood the pressure of a farmer to support his family and the economics that were involved there. And I thought, you know, why have we strapped this economic model onto our farmers? Because what was happening is, you know, up until that point, you and every other farmer had been able, able to save their seeds. And so that actually saves you money because you're saving your seeds season to season to season. Right. When these new genetically engineered crops were introduced, they were patented. And so a farmer had to license the use of those seeds and they were charged royalty fees and licensing fees and trade fees. So like if I'm the company selling those seeds, that's a brilliant business model because I've got licensing fee revenue, trade fee revenue, you know, royalty revenue. Oh, it's yeah. great if you're the chemical company. If you're the farmer, you're suddenly paying all these things out that you have never had to pay before. And what you want to look at is as we increase the application of genetically engineered crops and then the portfolio of chemicals you also have to buy to grow them, farmer debt level just started to skyrocket. And that to me felt like an intolerable cruelty because I thought, you know, what we have actually done is this agrochemical company has built its model on the backs and on the debt levels of the U.S. farmer. And with that, you know, I really had to step back and say like this, this, it, it felt so morally complicated is probably the polite way to say it. I had a stronger reaction at the time. And I thought, you know, we can't get our farmers out of this until we can figure out the economic construction that allows them to unwind out of that debt and to unwind out of that agrochemical model into an economic solution that actually is financially viable for them. So, you know, that was it was so multifaceted. It was just this very, very deep concern around what was happening to the health of American families. And then recognizing that if we literally bankrupt the American farmer, we really, we really are in a, in a food security crisis. Yeah. Now they're, they're, your dog's got a hold of something out there. <laughs> that's okay. That's life. We, we love that. That's why this is live and, and spontaneous. Don't worry about that, Robin. Um, but Robin, this is, this is, uh, you're describing something that's very dangerous here. I mean, we are, we are just days or maybe weeks away from, from meltdown here. Yeah. I mean, I I think people need to understand that we really are in a very vulnerable position and, you know, you, you can speak to it. Other farmers that I've met with over the last 15 years can speak to it. You know, the other piece of this is that if, if you're a 20-year-old or a 25-year-old and you've watched your dad get into this agrochemical model and the debt levels associated with it, mm-hmm. you know where that ends. And so what was happening and what we're seeing happen is these younger, these younger generations are like, you know, I don't necessarily want to step into farming. I don't want to take over that model yeah. because it's not financially viable. It's not financially viable. And the, ri- the risk level is too high. The risk is too high. Yeah. So, so that's where, 
you know, that's where we have to, as a collective here, we have to come up with a way that we don't offend the farmer, but yet somehow educate them to the point where they need to understand it's time to step out of that world and try something different. Yeah, so, I think it's, I think it's partly education, you know, and I, I spent a lot of time, you know, speaking to this and meeting with amazing farm organizations. And I'm so grateful for that. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time um, with farmers who, who were, who pushed back in a really um, aggressive way, which I'm also grateful for because it helped me learn more and understand more of where their pain points are. And what became really clear was you can educate and educate and educate, but if it's not a financial solution, if you can't change that financial situation yeah. for the grower, all yeah. you are doing is inflicting pain because yeah. you were telling him or her something, you know, that is causing so much pain and right. yet you're not coming with a solution. And so that's why I'm so proud of what we have created at Replant because what we, what we landed on was we need that financial solution. We need that financial opportunity to open up for the growers so that they can take that three to five years or in your, you know, you've said it took by, by year seven, you felt you could breathe. We need to give them that timeline so that they can make this transition and also support their family. You wouldn't ask any other industry to strap on the debt levels and put themselves in those kinds of conditions that we have asked American farmers to live in. And so, you know, again, um, I, it may be because I'm named after one and she had, she had cancer and her daughter had cancer. You know, it may be the, the patriotism piece of this, you know, but I know, I know we can do better. And so you've got to look, unfortunately, or, you know, fortunately, you've got to look at all these different levers in front of us. So education is one piece, you know, access to capital is another piece. Right. Technical assistance is another piece, you know, teaching the farmers how to break that addiction with the chemical inputs and transition towards soil stewardship. And then, you know, another key piece is policy. And what we're seeing is at the state level, policymakers are starting to sort of wake up to this because one of the key problems is that in this agrochemical model, you know, the damage done to the soil has really hindered the soil's ability to hold water, carbon, mm -hmm. nutrients, and all these other things. But if water's a North Star for absolutely every single person on the planet, then we really need to enhance the soil's ability to hold water. Right. And unfortunately, with how we've treated the soil, it's it's lost that carrying capacity. And so what we're seeing is as you transition towards soil stewardship, you increase that carrying capacity for water of, of soil. That's a policy play because all of a sudden you got a governor out in California or a governor in Ohio or, you know, yesterday's conversation was about the governor of Alaska. You know, these governors are realizing like water is one of the most valuable assets they've got. And if we can actually farm in a way that is stewarding water in a responsible way, you know, there's there's really a policy obligation there. Well, sure. I mean, all, all these states that rely on on pivots to 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 maintain growth of their crops, if they could reduce that by 50 percent. Oh, my gosh. I know. I know. And I think, you know. Um, I, I had a call last week with um, um, a corporate ranching entity and um, the farmers there had taken land and the picture was from 2016 to 2020. And I just thought like, put that in front of Congress. This picture alone in front of Congress explains everything that you and I are doing. Yeah. And it was a barren piece of land that had been used to grow potatoes that was just desolate looking. And within that four year period, it had, you know, had been transitioned using chickens and basically chicken poop to fertilize this just gorgeous acreage into this just lush green 
gorgeous field. And I thought like that is within four years. And I think that's why I'm so, you know, such a pathological yeah. optimist on this is because, and you are too, it's because you can see what's possible. You know what's doable. Well, let's go back to replant. Um, okay, it, it, how can folks, first of all, how can folks get to your website? Give us the web address, please. Yes, please do. Replantcapital.com. And then, you know, I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me on social media anywhere. Um, but replantcapital.com. Send us a note. Let us know that you're coming in through Rick's podcast um, so that we know you're a friend of Rick's. And um, we would love to connect with you. There is, you know, as a team, there are three co-founders. Um, you know, the partnerships that I bring from my work over the last 15, 20 years with these food companies. And that came from a really personal place. You know, they started to reach out because they were like, hey, I have a child with autism or I have a child with cancer or I have a mother, you know, that's got breast cancer. Um, it, the personal became, um, you know, professional, which has been amazing to witness over the last decade. Um, but in those partnerships, we were able to sit down and say, you know, who are your most forward thinking farmers? That's when we learned which companies actually knew their farmers. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, we could sit down with those farmers and say, what do you need? You know, and instead of coming from this arrogant place of one size fits all and we're the banking institution, right. we're going to tell you what you need as a right. farmer, which is so arrogant. You know, instead, it's we're going to sit down with you and our head of lending comes from the farm credit system and he, he's out on farm and he's like, what do you need? You know, what do you need to make this transition? Is it cover crop seeds? Is it equipment? Do you need capital for, you know, expansion of your acreage? What do you need? And then we craft a term sheet based on that farmer's needs. What's unique about us is the only thing we ask and the cost of capital is extraordinarily low because we are tapping um, these philanthropic sources that are understanding that it's going to take three to five years. You know, most conventional lenders, are not going to give you three to five years. And so we can tap lending partners that allow us to give the farmers three to five years. And what we ask in return is that we can capture these metrics around water conservation, water infiltration, soil organic matter. So that's actually part of our term sheet. And then we bring in that guaranteed buyer. So, you know, after working with some of these companies for 15 years to be able to have them, you know, guaranteeing the offtake. And it's so that, you know, for any farmer that says, I'm ready to step into this, we can mitigate the risk by offering the low cost of capital, by offering the technical assistance, and by bringing in that guaranteed buyer for the offtake. Because again, like financially, it has to work for the farmer. If it does not work financially for the farmer, it's not going to stick. Yeah. That, I mean, folks, this is huge. What Robin's talking about, this is big. We did not do this. We, we carried our own load. And I'm telling you, it's a big load to carry when you are trying to step out of this i call it the easy button you know chemical world and move into a world that is building soil health and building human health it's not easy mentally or financially so let's go through the playbook now robin so a farmer contacts you i mean how much obviously you just talked about the financial part but we also talked about teaching. Are you folks doing the teaching or are you teamed up with some other other people? Yeah, that's a great question. And I am constantly saying to my team, we are teachers also. Yep. We are teaching and we are teaching inside the companies themselves. Um, I would not assume to be able to teach a farmer anything. I would say we would collaborate with the farmers. Yeah. Um, you know, we are teaching investors. We're teaching a lot of investors. We host a lot of webinars. There's a lot of interest in supporting um, transition agriculture, whatever you want to call it, soil yeah. health, regenerative. I mean, it gets a lot of different labels. 
But there's a lot of interest in supporting transition agriculture because we know as we build soil health, you know, the the products coming off that land have a higher nutrient um, component. And then you've also got this, you know, ability to store carbon and store water. And so for an investor, you know, they would get just the return that we would offer through the fund and also um, these talking points about these metrics and the impact on water and the impact on soil health and the impact with carbon. Um, but I think the education piece is, is, is critical. And, you know, you touched on the mental health component. Pioneering stuff is an incredibly lonely job. And it's something I had to do for a very long time. You had to do for a very long time. Um, you tap into, you know, your family, you tap into your faith. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of resiliency and tenacity that's required. And some people aren't wired for that. Um, mm-hmm. Some people are. And so something that I've learned is, you know, anytime we're building anything, I mean, if you were building your farmhouse, you would have supportive scaffolding going around it as you construct this beautiful farmhouse. And something I've learned is that as people were really not any different and we need that supportive scaffolding around us. And so yeah. that's a role that I really try to play is, you know, how can I support you as you grow into this leadership role inside the company, inside a farm organization to provide that sort of supportive scaffolding kind of almost in a spiritual way, you know, to, to help to help people understand they don't have to go through this by themselves. And that's born out of me having to go through it by myself. I just know that 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 it was enormous and it's asking a lot to ask someone to go through it by themselves. And I think you've talked about it. You know, I've heard other farmers talk about it where you get together in these coffee shops and, you know, a couple of years ago, there'd maybe be like three or four or five people. And now it's standing room only. That's that supportive scaffolding. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. That it's that, it's that community. And see, that's what I love so much about, about, uh, I don't know, call it a movement. I don't know what, whatever you want to call this, but <clears throat> when you get when you get the folks in the room, everyone is willing to lay it all out on the line and be total transparent and and not scared to pick up the phone and call Lauren Steinlage or Mitchell Hora or somebody uh, and ask, "Hey guys, what are you thinking? What are you seeing?" Uh, that's what I love about this and. And let's talk a little bit about that. What what are you seeing on on people that are really pushing in this that are trying to figure out how to vertically stack all this together? What what are you what are you seeing? So, you know, I think there's a lot of sort of hard skills that people tend to focus on and you miss some of the most important skills. I think the ability to collaborate is an enormously important skill. Not everybody can do it. There's a lot of ego and ego oh, yeah. to be the absolute like death of collaboration. Um, collaboration is a key piece. Creativity is a key piece. You know, yeah. I look at you guys out in the field and to me, you were just like God's artist. You know, you were out there designing this stuff and it's like, there's incredible creativity that's required there. And, yeah. you know, that's another skill set that I think tends to not be spoken to enough. So, you know, I'd say collaboration, creativity, and then my third C is courage. Um, you know, and it's easy to get locked into a comfort zone. It is so easy to let fear take over your head and start to spin out these terrible catastrophic stories. 
And so, um, you know, that's where I think leaning on others, you know, like where you're having a moment, you're like, whew, you know, just went into this total like spiral of panic. Um, Something I've learned in in my career is that fear really, to me, feels like a seatbelt that's trying to lock you in your comfort zone. It just kind of tries to like keep you in your status quo. And I've learned to really identify it and be like, you know, I know when I'm pushing through into something new, when I can feel that seatbelt locking, trying to lock me in. Mm -hmm. And I've learned to sort of identify it and name it. Um, but I think, you know, touching on the community piece, you really do. You need to be able to pick up a phone and call somebody and be like, I'm kind of freaking out today. You know, this is where my head is. Talk me back from the edge. And that that's this community piece that you're talking about. Yeah. And I think this has got to stay. It's got to stay woven in here with this this fabric. That's you know, it's almost like we're building the bridge as we're walking across the, the river. You know, it's all happening at the same time here. Um, yeah, we're not, I, I, you know, I used to say movement, we're building an industry, Rick, and we are actually building a resiliency into the U.S. farm economy. It's that big. It is really that big. And as you build any industry, you have all of these different components. You have consultants, of course, you need consultants, you have financial, you have capital, you're going to have educators, you know, yeah. there are all these different pieces. And I think Again, like that's why it's so exciting to me because like the door is wide open, you know, and it's like there's so much opportunity for anyone to come in. You know, if somebody's brilliant at marketing, if somebody's brilliant at developing podcasts, you know, whatever it is, find your thing and bring it. Yeah. Well, we've got a question from uh, from Deanna Lazinski. Deanna, how are you doing? I hope you're having a good evening to see a good evening this evening. Um, Robin, basically what she wants to know is. Uh, if we wean ourselves from, from big chemistry, big, big, whatever, big fertilizer, whatever you want to call it, um, how much pushback are they going to have? Are they going to allow this to happen? Uh, I, I can imagine your feet have been on the fire before on this yep. one. So, uh, tell us what, what you think about that. Yes, there will be pushback. Yeah. Um, any change in any growth, think of that little seed that you guys plow underneath the earth and think of how much pushback is on that little seed <laughs> to grow into the thing that we know it needs to become, we're the seed. Yeah. And so, you know, there is going to be pushback. There is always disruption. There are always going to be the naysayers. There are always going to be the status quo protectors. And, you know, one of the companies that I saw when I was in investments um, was Blockbuster. Blockbuster had 100% market share back in the day. There may be people on this call that don't even know what a Blockbuster is, but it had 100% market share back in the day. There was a tiny little startup called Netflix that came to Blockbuster and said, hey, we want to stream videos over the internet. Would you want to collaborate with us? And the CEO of Blockbuster said, who's going to want to watch videos over the internet? Totally walked away from the deal a couple of times. Now Blockbuster has totally, you know, gone bankrupt. And I promise every person on this podcast probably has been watching Netflix over the last couple of years in the pandemic. So don't underestimate disruption, creativity, again, you know, collaboration. The CEO of Netflix was trying to collaborate, you know, with the old school guys. The old school didn't see it. They couldn't see the vision. They didn't want to let go of the 100% market share. What I think is super interesting right now is that you have companies that when I came out, you know, 10 years ago talking about this stuff, they were doing everything they could to to get me not to talk about it. Those same companies now are saying, we're listening to our farmers and we know that the farmers are asking for organic product. 
So, you know, it's not going to be this beautiful straight, straight line. It's not going to be this perfect disintegration disruption into something new. It is going to be both and for a while. And so, you know, again, it makes economic sense for our farmers not to be strapped into $426 billion of debt to yeah. finance the agrochemical model. That is not a sustainable farming model. End yeah. of story. So, you know, it's going to take a while. And yes, there's going to be a lot of pushback. What I think is interesting is that the food industry itself is, is now, you know, joining, joining in this campaign because what has happened is 80% of consumers now are trying something organic. It's not everything. I mean, not everybody, you can't afford it all anyway. It's the, the right. math doesn't work. The economics aren't there yet, but 80% of consumers are trying something organic and 75% of all grocery store categories now carry something organic including things like pet food. The problem is only 1% of, of US farmland is organic. So if I'm the CEO of General Mills and 80% of my consumers are buying organic, 75% of grocery store categories carry organic, but only 1% of farmland is organic, my math doesn't work. That's not what's good. happening is we're importing organic, organic, you yeah. know, from these other countries with these third-party verifiers, you know, and it's like, what actually is going on there? You know, you'll see a big headline every once in a while, like some boat coming over and it's just, it's bogus organic. Mm -hmm. You know, again, to me, it's like, let's get, let's grow what Americans want to eat. And if there is an, a premium for organic, then absolutely the American farmer should benefit from that, which then brings you to the next part of the math, which is the subsidies in the, in the farm. Right. So as taxpayers, my tax dollars are going into that and they're supporting this agrochemical model. That's how my tax dollars are being used. If I, when I was mailing in those checks, got to check a box and say, hey, I wanna support Farm Green and guys like Rick, you know, instead of the agrochemical guys, but we don't have that choice. And so it's not an even, it's not an even playing field. No. So you've got to level that playing field financially, which is why, you know, these policy conversations are so important. And so how can we level that playing field financially? Um, that's going to take a big choir of us making some noise and absolutely the chemical companies. I mean, that is a handout that they get that that is a handout that they get. And, yeah. you know, it's not it's it people sort of spin it like it's a handout to farmers. It, it's it's really you're financing the growth of that agrochemical company. So that handout is actually but, benefiting those agrochemical companies. See, I don't think I don't think it's viewed as that in, in the mainstream I don't think it's viewed that way. I don't think, you know, I, I really was so fortunate to have some amazing economic professors when I was in grad school. Um, and that's really what we're talking about is basic economics. And um, you're right. I don't think it is, it, is, it is clear enough to enough people because people complain about the higher price point, but they don't realize that their own tax dollars are creating that inequality. Yeah. And so, you know, it's sort of like, there's going to be a moment where there is that, you know, like, I can't believe our tax dollars are actually yeah. subsidizing this food system that I don't, that I don't actually want to choose. Um, and that's the bigger conversation. So, you know, I talk a lot about governance and how important it is. Um, the profile of the financial institutions and the profile of our government institutions really, really are pretty similar. And so to have more representation at these higher levels, I mean, I would love to pack every member of Congress on a bus and bring them out to your yeah. farm and say, they this need. is actually what it looks like because they don't know. And so they're voting on legislation that they just don't know enough about. And they get these talking points from the lobbyists, but it's like, yeah. I think one of the most valuable things we could do would be to pack up 
every member of Congress and get them out on a farm. Yeah, and and I think also, you know, the 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 CEOs and and the executive level of all these companies. Every time, you know, if I have the if I am fortunate enough to meet these folks, I tell them you've got to get on your work boots and drive out to the farm. Totally, you have to do this. Totally. And they all are like, well, why, you know, and then once you talk through it, it's like, oh, well, I never thought about that. Oh, well, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I just, I wish on the education piece, you know, my four kids have heard a lot over the years, you know, but I wish it was taught in school. You know, it's like, this is, this is food economics. Like what we're talking about is food economics and this should be taught in school. And instead we're in this like, you know, debate over the cost of organic. Well, you know, it has been intentionally structured that way using our tax dollars, you know? So let's, let's really, let's start to understand taxation in the U.S. Let's understand policy. It's so teachable. It's yeah. not as intimidating. I think some people maybe think it's really intimidating. It's really not. It's really right. just some really simple math. Right. Um, got a question here from Lauren. Um, what crops or products are, are, are you looking for? Is there anything you're looking for in specific with replant? That's a great question. So we really are focused on um, diversifying. You know, we, um, we recognize that there are some commodity crops um, that, you know, we have farmers who have been growing genetically engineered corn and soy that are really trying to break from that model. Um, we've got ranchers, we've got chicken, we've got chicken farmers, we've got um, almond orchards, you know, that we're working with, berry growers. Um, you know, we've got um, some of the big beverage companies that make some of um, our country's beer. And, you know, it's really, I'm, I'm really proud of how diversified the portfolio is. One of the um, farmers that we're working with is bringing the very first regenerative organic certified product to one of these multinational food companies, the very first one. And I'm so proud that, that, that we're at that point. And so, you know, for us, it's just, how do we expedite this? How can we facilitate it? How can we get capital into the hands of farmers? Right. Um, how, how can we help these food companies offer the products that American families want in the 21st century? Because it has changed and it's changed because the health of our families have changed and nobody wants to be reading labels in the grocery store. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't one of those moms. I mean, I, I really, you know, that was the last thing I wanted to spend time on. And yet because of the rates of diabetes and cancer and food allergies and all these things, you know, we all find ourselves like screening and reading these labels. And so to me, it's, you know, one of the greatest services is how can we make this easier and more affordable and more accessible? And right. to me, like the solution has to start with the farmer. And, and if that farmer is financially successful, that's the beginning of, of scaling this. Right. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's go to organic for a moment. I got a question from Michael here. Uh, Robin, Robin, with organic food market share growing at the rate that it's growing, are we at the tipping point with organic going mainstream. So then I assume what he, he wants to add also is, is it going to dilute it to the point to where those those prices are gonna come down? Yeah, I think that that to me is is really kind of right where we are, this nexus, you know, of how it, it's, it's clear the consumer is asking for it. Yeah. It's clear when companies like Walmart, 7-Eleven, Costco, you know, it, this isn't some fringy West Coast, you know, New York thing anymore. This isn't just Whole Foods, Whole Paycheck anymore. You walk into any, any King Supers, any Safeway, you know, it, it's there. Any Kroger, it's there. 
Um, and I think what was super interesting to me was early on in my work in trying to get the big multinationals to begin to adjust their portfolio, they were slow to adopt. And the actual retailers themselves, the grocery stores themselves adopted much faster because they saw the consumer coming through and think about it. Every time we go through that checkout line, you're scanning something. Yeah. Safeway is capturing that data. So Safeway is like, well, hey, you know, we see a bunch of families coming through buying organic carrots. And the next thing you know, Safeway's got their own organic carrots. And so, you know, the, the, the retailers themselves were the early adopters and a company like Kroger went from zero to a billion in revenue in their organic product offering, that private label in the first couple of years. And it's just been their moneymaker year after year after year. Wow. So, um, you know, again, I can't preach it as this solution because unfortunately it's not affordable and accessible to everyone right now because we don't have it structured in a way that makes sense mathematically with right. the money coming to the farmer. And, um, and then on top of that, you know, if a farmer's growing things organic, he has to, you know, pay all these fees to prove it's safe and then pay fees to label it organic. Right. That's upside down, in my opinion. You know, I think the genetically engineered crops that have been introduced in the last 20 and 30 years, those are actually the things that should be labeled because those are the things that are new. Um, that's a bigger conversation. I may still be talking yeah. about that when I'm 90, but. Um, yeah. I mean, if you think back about that, Robin, um, the first genetic soybean, I believe, was 97, 1997. So what is that, uh, 25 years ago? Mm -hmm. That's it. Mm -hmm. And and look at what not only, you know, looking at what could be issues with the food, but look at now we've got weeds that are resistant to certain chemistries that, that the farmers can no longer combat. So right. it's, I mean, this is almost the definition of, of, a, of a conundrum, you know, I mean, and, 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 and the folks don't know how to get off the, the merry-go-round. Well, and then they just get promised the next chemical and then promise the next yeah. chemical. And, you know, and unfortunately it's, it's, it becomes the addiction, the addiction has been created. And then that addiction is being strapped on the back of the farmer with these increased debt levels. And that was the part to me that just was so intolerable. And so, yeah. you know, and, and when I learned, you know, because I, I mean, I, I didn't know the soil science. And as I began to understand that you could actually break that addiction to the chemicals and begin to steward the soil and heal the soil, um, you know, it just became, it, it just, I was so grateful for that as a solution and thought, right. how can we scale this? How can you scale the education piece, which you do so much of Rick? And then how do you scale the technical assistance piece? Because it's hard for any of us to admit what we don't know. And, you know, if a farmer has only been farming using that model for 20 or 30 years, it's, you're in a hard place sort of psychologically to be like, right. you don't know what to do. So to be able to offer these technical assistance partners, that that space is growing like crazy and it's attracting a lot of young people. And what I love about that is it takes fifth, sixth generation, you know, farm families, somebody who's probably in their 30s who understands soil stewardship and also then can take the amazing technology we do have today for 21st century technology and the yeah. The on-farm technology, again, is just remarkable what we have today. And you can marry that soil stewardship with 21st century technology to really accelerate some of these solutions. Yeah, um, I love that you just make this sound so simple. I just love, you just, you, ver you explain this very well. So I appreciate that. And I, I'm sure our audience does also. Um, so let's go, let's go a little deeper, which I, you know, this is where I'm at in my journey. I'm, I am, 
if you don't have soil health, you're never going to have human health. And right. and that and, and I just you know do do our do we have less yields than we used to have? Yes, we do. Do we have uh, some fields that maybe be a little weedy than they used to be? Yes, we do. But we've eliminated all synthetic everything. It's but all. But let's look at what you just said the, the 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 bit before though, Rick. I mean, the guy using the chemicals has also got all the weeds. That's right. You know, and his yields have also been compromised but, because the soil health has deteriorated so much. So, you know, it's it's not it's not as it's not as black and white as as campaigns want it to be. You know, it's exactly it, this is truly right. in transition. You know, we've got weeds now on both sides. And so thankfully there's 21st century technology emerging. I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, companies that are really trying to address soil science and their companies that are coming out with robotics for the weeds. And it's like, we really are standing at the front of a very, I think a very exciting time for agriculture where we yeah. can say, okay, this is what we learned over the last 30 or 40 years. And now we can take this, we can use these soil diagnostics, we can use the data, we can use the technology to inform us, you know, and get to these solutions faster. Yeah, I, you know, I'm going to ask you a question here in just a moment. I'm going to make a, I'm going to make a statement here first. Um, you know, you made a very good point there just a minute ago. You know, I was saying, how do we have weed problems? Yeah, we do sometimes. But you also said, but you see, those folks are never talked about. It's always looking at, well, look what Rick's doing. Mm -hmm. Look at that mess Rick's got over here. Mm -hmm. You know, it's never talked about the other way around. So you've got to be able to overcome that, which that's difficult, but that's okay. That's just, that's just part of life. But what I want to ask you is what, what do you think needs to happen? I mean, what, who needs to come to get, who needs to be aligned or, or, or what needs to happen to get, to keep the push going, I guess, you know, to go to that next level, what do you see? I think we need to have a very serious meeting of the minds um, in DC. Yeah. You know, that budget that, that those levers at the federal level um, influence so much. And something that I often say is you cannot fix a broken food system with a broken financial system. Yeah. And the reason we have such extractive agricultural systems on the farm is because the financial systems that are governing that are also highly extractive. And so the thing that has not been talked about enough is that capital is actually the first ingredient in any food system. And the terms of that capital are gonna dictate the terms of that farm. And so unfortunately we've had enormously extractive terms dictated you know, by you know, some of the federal spending bills, by some of the conventional lending institutions. And our proposition at Replant is why in the world have we accepted that as status quo? Yeah. Let's look at capital as a regenerative force for good. So, you know, you hear about regenerative agriculture, soil health, like we should actually be thinking about capital that way too. And so if we are going to be allocating the jaw dropping number of tax dollars that we are allocating, why are we not allocating those dollars in a regenerative way? So exactly. that's the bigger conversation. And so unfortunately, I think it gets siloed. And the conversations are here are the farmers over here, and here are the lobbyists over here, and here are the policymakers over here. And really, you know, it is it is way past time for everybody to come around the table and have this conversation. And um, we're seeing it at the state level. You know, here in Colorado, I'm really proud of what we're doing. Governor Polis is a friend, and Kay Greenberg, our ag secretary, she's a friend. 
And she really is recognizing this public-private partnership. And that's what we're talking about. You know, you can't solve it by yourself. I can't solve it by myself. Bill Sack can't solve it by himself. So it's going to take all of us coming around the table to say, how do we collaborate and solve this together? Right. Yeah, I just, you know, and I think that I think this can happen. I, I think that I think there's the right uh there's the right mindset. I think the urgency is is becoming, you know, it's real. It's not just hearsay anymore. Um, and, you know, maybe it took COVID to 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 be the catalyst for this. But then obviously with uh, with Putin uh, invading Ukraine, it just has amplified this problem. Well, and I also think, you know, you're right. It's like that projection of, oh, look over there at the organic guys. Oh, look at the weeds over there. Because, hey, guess what? You know, I don't want you looking in my field, you know. Yeah. And what we know is, are these super weeds? I mean, the stories around those super weeds are, are some pretty horrific stories. So we've got a weed problem, you know, mm -hmm. and and the promises of the last 30 years help create the yeah. super weed problem that we now have. Right. Do I want to spend any more time wagging a finger and pointing back? No, I did that, you know, and I don't want to do it anymore. It's, you know, we know we have a problem. We're big kids here. There's a problem. And, you know, how do we create a solution that is economically viable for our farmers? And I think, you know, something that we forget and you know it better than anyone is what we do to the soil. We also do to our children. And so the more responsible we can be about soil stewardship, the more responsible we are being for our children. Right. And I think where it's so exciting in this transition agriculture right now is it is such a win, 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 win. It's a win for the farmer. It's a win for soil. It's a win for climate. It's a win yep. for our kids, win for the food companies, you know? So it's like, if everybody wins except the agrochemical company. So that's the one that's the that's the Lone Ranger on the other side. But I think, you know, what we need to realize is like we've actually we've got this win win. So, um, you know, let them alchemize themselves into some kind of ag tech company, whatever they want to do next. You know, but um, it's become really clear, you know, that the, the model that, that they promised, as you said, in the early 1990s, that's when those first patents, you know, were first released. Um, it, it, it hasn't materialized like they promised. And. Um, it's time for us to do something different. Yeah, and and you know there there's also there's also a lot of people on the opposite side of this space that have have a big loud voice that they're saying things too that you know we can't we can't feed the world unless we we have genetically modified traits in the in this food you know. Well, so, so that was something that got slammed at me for a long time, and so when Bear came out and said, we're actually going to be rolling out an organic line. You know, I thought, hmm, that, mm. you know, that sort of makes that, that talking point null. And, we, right. and the reason they said they want to roll out that organic line is because they were listening to the farmers. Mm -hmm. So again, you know, if I could do anything, if I could elevate any voice, it would be a voice like yours. It's the voice of the farmer. Um, I don't think farmers have the respect that they deserve for the role that they play. It is not just for the food that you're putting on our on our family's dinner table, it is yeah. this soil stewardship and and as as you know these is is the work that you're doing around climate and the environment and you're not compensated for that. I feel you know I feel so strongly that farmers and teachers both are not compensated for the service that they provide. And so you know again it gets back to the math. So how can we make sure yeah. you know that farmers are actually compensated for this for this greater good that they're providing? 
Well, teachers especially, t there's no teachers paid enough money to, because they're the they're the beginning foundation of how that that young person's being, you know, their their structure and their their future is all about it. Well, and if you look at if you look at our country's military budget for national security, and it's like, you know, food security is national security. And it's time to think about these things in a much bigger way. Um, and I, you know, again, like none of us, I mean, I, I wouldn't be able to feed my family for very long without, you know, the support of all of the fam of the farmers around us. And we're really vulnerable and we're vulnerable with the legacy crisis that we now have in the US farm economy with young people not wanting to step into it. So how do we make this economically and financially viable and, and, and appealing you know, to the next generation? Right. Now we're running short on time here this evening. Um, let's go back to replant a little bit here. Let's go a little deeper. So someone walks in uh, obviously, you've got to get as much history as you can from that person, but lay out what it would look like, you know, how much money could they possibly get to and and what are some more of the of the of the terms of the contract. Well, you know, again, it's going to be farmer by farmer, but we really are trying to address sort of this 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 bridge capital this space that that people can't touch. You know, when I sat down with my friends at the Farm Service Agency at the USDA and they shared that the largest loan they can make is $600,000, I thought, how in the world do we transition at scale if that's the largest yeah. loan that one of our government institutions can make? So, um, you know, for us, you know, we've got we've had loans as small as 250000 but we really are looking at, at a bigger number than that. Um, we've got loans right now that are at like 7 million, you know, and it's mm. going to depend it, if, if we're talking to a guy that's, you know, running chickens in California, it's going to look totally different to sure. somebody that's got a ranch in Georgia or rice down in Arkansas. Sure. Um, so it's really, you know, what happens from our side of things is, um, Don, who is the head of soil fund yeah. and Tim, who is the head of lending will come out and meet with you. And, you know, they'll be on your farm and sit down with you and say, you know, what are the needs? You know, is it acquisition of acreage? Is it equipment? You know, what are your needs? And then they'll structure those terms specific, you know, to your specific project. As we continue to scale, I am certain we're gonna start to see, you know, projects start to repeat themselves. Yeah. But right now, um, Tim, you know, he comes from this farm credit system. And so that's his background. And then um, they sit down and they craft those terms. We make sure that we have a guaranteed buyer for the offtake. I think that is a really, really critical piece for mitigating the risk. And that's something I'm so proud to bring to the team because um, I had heard from so many farmers how they wanted to make the transition, but they couldn't stare down that three-year transition period without know, you know, not knowing if somebody's going to be there on the end to buy it. So again, for us, it was how do we mitigate the risk across that transition? So does the farmer and the 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 individual or uh, you know five hundred one c three or whatever wherever the money's coming from do they do they get to meet each other and do they they get to well that's a, a great question yeah. so you know we've had you know I mean as you know you know in this in the world we're in right now there's animal ag and there's plant based and there are people oh, yeah. that are really opinionated on both sides of those things you know oh, yeah. um, so we try to sort of say like I have a dad that loves to eat meat and I want him to eat the highest quality meat he's going to eat. You know, I also have a sister-in-law that's plant-based and I want her to eat the highest quality plant-based stuff. Right. So I'm not going to tell them what to eat, but I want them to eat the best of the category that they're in. Right. And that's sort of our approach. And so we do have investors that are very plant-based and very plant-forward, you know? So if we're talking about transitioning an almond orchard in the Central Valley in California and transitioning that orchard, we see a 500% increase in water infiltration. I mean, which that's an amazing amount, you know, of oh, yeah. 
of an increase, um, we can say, you know, here's an opportunity in California for those plant-based people, you know, we don't, um, I think, you know, what we are really trying to do is educate. So instead of having investor conferences, which look like investor conferences, we host um, our investors on farm. That's awesome. And we take them, you know, we've had them on dairy farms that are, that are, you know, in transition. And there's a lot of opportunity for a dairy farm that's in transition. It's not all pretty and it's not all perfect. And that's actually the point is to be able to come in and say, we're going to take you in underneath here. We're going to like pull the lid back and you're going to be able to see what's actually happening here. And you can see where you can put a biodigester on this farm to capture the methane. And then all of a sudden it powers that farm in that community. And yeah. um, that's the education piece that, that I love doing. And so, you know, we've got um, farmers, you know, around the country who've offered to to host more of these investor events. You know, that's one of the absolute things I'm the most excited about coming yeah. out of COVID. Well, and see, I can't imagine that, that, you know, first of all, if these folks were going to take their money somewhere else, they'd want to know exactly what was going to happen with their money all the way to the end. So what's different in this situation? It's exactly the same. Right. And, and maybe that's where, um, you know, Lauren, Lauren asked another question and he said, any events or programs that you would recommend we need to get involved in? Well, maybe we need to be talking with with replan about possibly even though we're not l borrowing money from you maybe we need to have these events yeah you know colleen on our team is the one that puts together these webinars and she's like rachel for you and she's absolutely great at it and her touch yeah. is just amazing and i think you know what i will suggest to her coming out of this is we should be doing one for the farm community. It's just Q and A, like who's replant, you know, who is replant, get to know our team and we can answer the questions and Don and Tim who are overseeing all the lending um, could be on that call to answer these questions. And I, I would love to do something like that. And, with you. and we can do this, we can do another episode in the future, Robin, and, and get the whole gang on and, and just walk through uh, a, a scenario, you know, mm -hmm. we can do that. Well, and I think, you know, I mean, like, we're not going to assume to know, you know, I think that's where we got into trouble. Um, it was sort of this top down approach from the agrochemical companies, you know, it was top down from the financial industry, it was top down. And it's like, it's the farmer who has the knowledge and, right. wisdom and the expertise and why in the world did we silence that voice? And so, you know, for us, it's how do we elevate it? Yeah. And now, now I think the, the, um, what's the word I want? Um, the creative thing now to think about is how are we going to get this shift to happen without insulting them, making them upset, you know, telling them that what they've been doing is, is, is hasn't been correct. So we got to figure out how to massage that and, and get as many uh, to shift as we can. I don't think you need to get everyone because see, once you get a nucleus of three or four or five folks in an area, then it just feeds on itself. And right. then it just, it just grows. Right. I mean, I we've talked about this, Rick, you know, our, our, our initiative is to make a farmer in his particular community as successful as possible and let that yeah. story tell itself. Like we yeah. we're just behind the scenes providing the support because then it's farmer to farmer and we're getting that, you know, we're starting to hear from farmers being referred from other farmers. To me, that is just where the magic starts to happen. Um, I, I do think like we are starting to hit a, a level of conversation and, you know, I do understand the sensitivity when I was first speaking about the food industry, you know, people don't want to hear what they've been doing is bad. They don't want to yeah, no. feel like they've been labeled as wrong. No. And we're not, we're not saying that it's just, 
as we continue to learn more, we learn that there is more that we can do. And I think by, by having this economic conversation and making it a financial conversation, there is not a farmer I know that is comfortable with the debt levels that they are in. You know, some of these farmers will say, I've been in debt since I was 13 years old and it's not comfortable. And so to be able to say, you know, let, let's talk about this as an economic conversation, not, not this, he said, she said, not labeling something as bad. Those days are over. It's like economically, how do we lift you out of this into a better economic situation? that's better for you and your kids. And that to me, that's the conversation. I can, I'll bet you, Robin, I will bet you that when you, let's say you've interviewed uh, an, an individual or their family for the first time, and you, you, you read the body language, you can see what's going on. And then they come on as a, as a client of yours, you lend them the money, three years down the road, I bet you see a totally different outlook on things. Well, and you know, I've asked different farmers, and your family is a great example of this, you know, I've asked farmers and ranchers, you know, what's the greatest benefit you've seen in transitioning your farmland? And, you know, in the beginning of asking that question, I thought they would say something on the balance sheet or, you know, something in their profitability. Consistently, the answer that comes back is that their children came back to the farm. You can't put a number on that. Yeah, I know. That's that that. You know, Carol and I, um, we're just so thrilled that we've got our youngest daughters on on board with us here. And then our oldest daughter, she is is involved in in her husband's family farm. Couldn't couldn't be better. You know, they're 45 minutes away and and it's everything's good. Everything's really good. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, what what I love to be able to offer is if I can be a connection to people, you know, I just I believe in, in, in facilitating as much as I can. I'm not going to have all the answers. Our team isn't going to have all the answers, but we can hopefully connect you with somebody that that may have the answers. Yeah. Um, and I just feel um, that generosity of, of of that network to be able to share it with that kind of like abundance of energy. You know that that's just so important right now. You do it. You know that's what we do. And I just I think that generosity is really important right now. Yeah. Well, well, Robin, I we're about out of time here. You've got a, another obligation. Uh, it's been an absolute honor to have you on. And believe me, we're going to do this again because we just scratched the surface here this evening. Um, take us home here. Give us a couple minutes of what what you see in the future. What do you what what needs to happen? You know, just just take us home here. You know, I think the biggest thing that needs to happen is is for each person that's listening, for each one of us to realize you have the potential to make an enormous difference. Do do not sell yourself short. Yeah. Um, none of us can do this by ourselves. You know, we all play a really important role here. And as you begin to collaborate with people like we have, Rick, I mean, it's actually really fun. The energy in this space is really positive, incredibly oh. hopeful and inspiring energy. We are participating in incredible change, not just for the health of our families, but the health of our country. And to have that invitation in front of us as a generation, I think is one of the greatest gifts we could ever receive. And so to really see this as an open invitation to lend your talent and participate, none of us can do everything. So just park that idea, you don't have to, um, but lend your talent and join us. And I think, you know, that to me is is really the the call to action. That's, That's awesome. Folks, uh, replantcapital.com, and Robin is on every social media handle. She she is amazing. Robin, thank you so much for taking time out to be with us tonight. It's so much fun, Rick. It's so great to see you. Thank you. You, you bet.
You bet. Have a great evening, everyone. Thank you. We will see you next time. Thank you, Robin. Bye-bye. Thanks.